0: 3, 1 through 4, on page 984 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You may be seated. Good morning, guys. How are you all doing this morning? It's good to see. Hey, we got one person that's great. That's good to hear. It's good to see the smiles on your faces. Some of you aren't quite there yet, but that's all right. Uh, We're thankful that you are here this morning. And I just want to say right off the bat, uh, I am thankful for the gift of music, and I'm very thankful for the gifts that God has blessed the people within Delta with to lead us in worship. There is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. Uh, It's not just what you see and hear up here. Uh, Austin, Todd, they spend a lot of time Praying about songs, putting together a set list. There's a lot of time that goes into preparing, uh, rehearsing, all those kind of good things. And I'm I'm very thankful for those people. And I tell you what, Wade, that Wade guy, he's like, he is multi-talented. We have to practice just to keep up with his musical abilities. Like, that guy can play all kinds of instruments, so I'm thankful. Can we just give them a hand and thank them for their work? The uh, sermon series we're in, as you can probably see, well, eventually I imagine it'll be behind me, is, uh, is called Life, and as we continue in our study of Colossians and turn our attention specifically to chapter 3, I think we are entering uh, one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture as to what the Christian life is supposed to look like. So Paul has a common method that he uses um, in his letters where he starts out stating a section of doctrine or theology. He lays the truths of Christ, the truths of the gospel, and then turns to explain to his readers uh, how they can live in a way that's consistent with all that he's been teaching. So Paul never fails to connect the dots of theology with a believer's everyday life. Uh, He shows what it's like to live out theology and how it translates to behavior, how it translates to conduct. For the first two chapters of Colossians, we've seen this very thing. Uh, It's been heavy on doctrine, heavy on theology. Uh, He's lifted Christ high. He's shown that Christ is supreme. He's shown that he is the authority, that he is life, that he is the redeemer. And he's done this to remind the Colossian church that Christ is all that they need for life and for spiritual growth. So remember the false teachers were promising to the Colossian church uh, that life, fullness, and freedom would be found if they followed their man-made religion, if they followed their man-made set of rules, which completely devalued and minimized Christ. Uh, And we've seen Paul just unload glorious truths about Christ and expose the false teachers' message for what it really was. And so, Paul has now, when we turn to chapter three here, Paul has now shifted his focus entirely away from the false teachers and their false message and is now pointing the attention of his readers to the primary business of every believer, and that is to grow in spiritual maturity and obedience to Christ. And there's a very clear pattern, I think, that Paul lays out uh, to produce this spiritual growth. All the things that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks in chapter 3, all these things are impossible, I think, without what he unpacks for us in these first four verses. And the big idea I think we're going to see today is this. Spiritual growth stems from our position in Christ and our intentional, continual focus on Christ. Spiritual growth stems from our position in Christ and our intentional, continual focus on Christ. So we're going to dive right in here. I've got 341 pages of notes, so we're going to get started. All right, I'm just kidding. So uh, the, we're going to look at the first half of the, uh, that main idea there. First of all, spiritual growth stems from our position in Christ. So we're going to see in the, in the few verses here, Paul gives us a couple different views Um, Of what it looks like, of what a believer's position in Christ looks like. And we see the first one right here in verse number one. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ. And that term, raised with Christ, this is basically just a vivid description of what it means to be a true believer. And as we seek to wrap our minds around uh, what this phrase means, I think it will be helpful for us to get a picture of of what a person is like before they have been raised with Christ or before they have been saved. Uh, turn with me real quick to Ephesians 2. Ephesians, we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 real quickly. So due to our sin, due to the fact that we live according to how we want to live, the Bible's very clear about the spiritual state that we are in. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses in sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, so the this little section of scripture, spiritually speaking, what it's saying is: without Christ, we are already in the grave; we are dead and buried with no hope for escape. Colossians one twenty one says we are alienated from God, and this is a position we are in when we are born into this world. Our grave is sealed by the bondage of sin, and we are awaiting the final judgment and the wrath of God. And it's because of these terrible realities, this is why the gospel is called good news. The gospel reveals the grave-shattering power of Christ and the work that he's completed. It tells us how he stood in the path of God's wrath in our place, how he breaks the bondage of sin, and how he gives us new life. So when you believe this gospel message, when you put your faith, when you put your trust in Christ alone, all these things that Christ has done is immediately applied to your account. Your sins are forgiven. Your bondage to sin is broken. You're adopted into God's family. You become a child of God, a new creation. You're given a new life. But not only that, the Bible says that we are literally, spiritually speaking, raised with Christ. Look what he says a little bit further down. In Ephesians 2.6, this is what God does when we place our faith in Christ. He says, He raises us up with Him and seats us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So believers are brought from death to life, darkness to light, bondage to freedom. A believer is spiritually transferred from the deepest, darkest grave straight into the heavenly places. In other words, when he says, if you have been raised with Christ, what being raised with Christ means is that you have been raised to a whole new realm of existence. An entire new sphere. In other words, your position spiritually has completely changed. Paul gives us another look at a believer's position. uh, This time from a little bit different angle. Look down at the second half of verse 3. We find that if we've been raised with Christ, that means our life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, this is kind of an interesting uh, phrase that he uses here. Actually, it's a a -a one-of-a-kind phrase. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, But I think we can pull a couple of interesting and helpful things out of this phrase. Number one, I think it's a reference to the fact that this spiritual union between Christ and his people is a heavenly union. That means this union is something that physical eyes cannot see. It's concealed from the world. Our heavenly position with Christ is very much a reality, but it is hidden. But just because our union with Christ is hidden up there does not mean our Christianity should be hidden down here on earth which is exactly what we're going to be discussing over the next few weeks in chapter 3. Paul is saying that our heavenly spiritual union should play itself out in our earthly physical lives. Our Christianity is not to be hidden. But at the same time, because our union with Christ is hidden, this should be a heads-up to us, I think, a little red flag that when we start living out our Christianity, when we start living out the things Paul is going to be calling us to in chapter 3, when we start living according to these things, it's going to make zero sense to the world around us. The world is not going to understand why we say no to the desires of the flesh. The world is not going to understand why we show mercy when we've been wronged. The world will not understand why we persevere when we've been persecuted. They won't understand why we praise God in the midst of tragedy or trouble. These things will make no sense to those who have not been raised with Christ. Also within the word hidden, I think we get a sense of um, safety and security. I love how one of the commentators put it. He said, basically, if you are hidden with God... That means you are all wrapped up in God. Think about that for a minute. If you have been raised with Christ, you are all wrapped up in God. Now, this is a familiar phrase to us, being wrapped up with something. We use it, um, say, for a generic example. If you want to invite somebody to a certain activity on a certain night, you're like, well, you're probably not going to get that person on Thursday night because they're all wrapped up in whatever they do on Thursday nights. You know, that, that phrase is familiar to us. So when we say we're all wrapped up in something, uh, we're saying you can't think of a certain person without thinking of a certain thing or certain activity that they're, that, uh, that they're so immersed in. And as we're going to see, Paul is calling believers to live in a way that whenever people look at us, they should see that we are all wrapped up in Jesus This should be true of all believers because if we have been raised with Christ, this is the position we are now in. And this position in Christ being hidden with God, this is the ground of our security. Think about it for a minute. What can be more secure than being hidden in God himself? Jesus himself expressed this fact when he said in John 10, Speaking of his sheep, he said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So as believers, our lives are in Christ and both Christ and us are in the very hand of God wrapped up in the hand of the one who is greater than all. So outside of this position, outside of being raised with Christ, there is no hope for spiritual growth. If you desire to grow spiritually, then you must be planted in the only one who can take spiritually dead people and give them life. Without Christ, if you try to grow spiritually, you'll be just like the false teachers Trying to abide by all sorts of man-made religions and rules. and Paul's very clear at the end of verse, or excuse me of chapter two, that these are useless in defeating the desires of the flesh, which are the very things that cause spiritual death. But if you are positioned in Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Paul's going to show us that we have a responsibility. And this leads to the second half of our main point. Spiritual growth stems from intentional, continual focus on Christ. So Paul calls the believers to intentionally and continually focus on the new heavenly realm that they are now positioned in. How are they to focus? Paul says we are to focus by seeking and setting. Look back at verse number one there in Colossians 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So, first of all, I think it's important for us to recognize uh, right off the bat that Paul is not calling them to some sort of spiritual mysticism. Uh, he's not calling them to walk around in spiritual la la land all day with their with their head up in the clouds, uh, nor is he calling them to seek heavenly stuff uh, like the streets of gold, gates of pearl, angels, mansions. He's he's not calling them to seek about those things. So so what is he calling them to seek? Um, set their minds on. I think Paul is saying to seek the values, the principles and desires of the heavenly realm where we are now spiritually positioned. These are the things above that he's talking about. So remember back in Ephesians 2 that we just looked at where Paul was describing the position of an unbeliever. He said that an unbeliever walks and follows the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, that we were living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. So these desires, these passions, these lusts of the realm that the unbeliever was in is what was driving his thoughts, his actions, his speech. But Paul says if you've been raised with Christ, you've been transferred to a new realm. And we have died to the course of this world that once had dominion over us. We now have a new life in Christ. We are to seek the things that line up and are consistent with King Jesus. And our king, Paul says, is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is a position of authority, a position of power, a position of honor. We must seek the things he desires. All the things he holds precious should be precious to us. All that is offensive to him should be offensive to us. We are now positioned in a new realm and we are to now seek out the course of this new realm that Christ has placed us in. So seeking the things above means seeking the spiritual values that are embedded in the heart of our new life, Jesus Christ. Realities like tenderness, kindness, loveliness, meekness, patience, long-suffering, wisdom, forgiveness, and most of all, love. And notice the verb seek here is an active verb. So when he says to seek the things above, this is not just a casual glance or a quick look around for the things above. This is a continual persevering effort. This is an earnest, sustained seeking for the things that are above. But Paul doesn't, go, doesn't just stop there. He goes a step further and says that believers should not only seek the things above, that we are to set our minds on things above. Look at verse 2 where he says, Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. So in the Greek, uh, the set your mind, in the Greek this says to exercise the mind, or literally keep on thinking the things that are above. So we not only seek heaven, we are to think heaven. We are to let our minds be consumed and saturated with the things that we are seeking. Now think about it. If we have our mind set on something that much, it's going to make an external difference in our lives. And actually, if you think about it, Setting our minds on something is actually the driving force behind our seeking. You can't seek anything that you haven't set your mind on. For instance, Mallory and I, we have, we have a goal of being debt-free. Does anybody else have that goal? Like every hand's going up. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, we have a goal of being debt-free. Our minds have been set on that goal. And because we desire to be debt-free, that has driven us to seek Uh, the steps that need to be taken, the principles that need to be applied to reach the goal that we have set our minds on. And the principles that our seeking has produced, the steps that we have found that our seeking has produced, we then apply to our financial life, and they become the guidelines that we abide by in order to reach the goal that we have set our minds on. So the more we set our minds on, the more we seek the nature and character of Christ, the more we begin to live on earth as Christ lived on earth. The more we begin to see events that happen as Christ sees them. The more we begin to see people as Christ sees them. And the more we begin to grow spiritually. And live out our faith, as Paul is calling us to throughout this next chapter and a half or so. And once again, we must notice this is an active verb as well. This is a continual persevering effort. You see, the focus on the vertical should never stop because the pressures, the temptations on the horizontal never stop. While the dominance of sin is broken for the believer, the influence of sin still remains. And this is why he warns us at the end of verse 2 not to set our minds on things that are on the earth. And if you're not sure what he means by earthly things, take a quick glance down at verse number 5 that we're going to be looking at next week. The earthly things he's talking about, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. These are the things that drive the course of this world. These are the things that animate the realm that we were in apart from Christ, the position we were in apart from Christ. And what does Paul say? If you've been raised with Christ, you have died to those things. I love how one uh, commentator put it when uh, referring to... uh, For you have died. He says, This points to the definitive and irreversible split with the old life in which we were once immersed. We are to be as lifeless and insensible to it as a corpse is to the stimuli of the world in which it once existed. So Paul comes along and says, If you've been raised with Christ, you are not part of that realm anymore so get your heart and your mind up to where you're already spiritually positioned to where you're already spiritually living and the reason i think these are active verbs the reason he's calling us to continual action is because the earthly things that he lists here they don't always look that dangerous to us rather they look very inviting Many times. If you remember what Pastor John talked about last week, the desires of the world, the desires of the flesh, in the moments that we are tempted with them, look very good. They've, they look very pleasing to us. They look very inviting. They look very fulfilling. And Paul, knowing the allurement, allurement, is that even how you say that word? Allure, allurement? Allurement. Uh, that sin has, Paul knowing this, says we are to daily, continually realign our focus on the things that are above. Reminding ourselves of who we are, reminding ourselves of whose we are, and reminding ourselves of where we have been positioned. You see, the more we spend time thinking and meditating on the things above, I think the more we get kind of an elevated view of the things that are going on down here on earth. We start realizing that the desires, the things of this earth that he talks about in verse 5, we start realizing that those things are not what they seem. If we are daily, continually getting an elevated, heavenly view of the things of earth, when those things come to tempt us, the Holy Spirit immediately reminds us that those things are not what they seem. They may have a lot of curb appeal, but once you get inside, you find nothing but darkness, deception, and death. We must intentionally and continually Focus on Christ by seeking and setting our minds on the things above. So as I was uh, thinking about this text, I just kept asking myself, like, what, so what does this practically look like? That's, that's a question we all have, right? Um, what does someone who is seeking and setting their minds on things above, what does that look like for everyday life? And I think it looks like this. It's a person who prioritizes their position in Christ over any other position that they find themselves in down here. It's a person who prioritizes their position in Christ over any other position that they find themselves in on earth. So in other words, your identity in Christ, your Christianity, comes before anything else. Period. No matter what. And the position of our jobs. You're not a teacher who's a Christian. You're a Christian who teaches. You're not a banker that's a Christian. You're a Christian banker. You're a Christian doctor. You're a Christian mechanic. You're a Christian artist. You're a Christian secretary. Or in the position of our relationships, you're a Christian dad. You're a Christian mom. You're a Christian husband. You're a Christian wife. You're a Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. Even in the positions of really hard trials, You're a Christian who's lost your job. You're a Christian who's experienced death in the family. You're a Christian who's been hurt, who's been wronged, who's been offended. You're a Christian who has difficult family members. You're a Christian that struggles with depression. The list goes on and on. Like, I mean, We could name all kinds of positions that we find ourselves in here on this earth. But your identity in Christ trumps all of them. And that means reflecting the character of Christ is your number one priority. That priority dictates how you think, how you speak, how you act, and all the positions that we find ourselves in down here that priority dictates how you function in those positions. So in other words, what I'm saying is the position doesn't control you, Christ controls you. This, I believe, is what a person who is seeking and setting their minds on things above looks like. And can we just be honest for a minute that this is difficult? <laughs> like, this is not easy. This is extremely hard to do. Seeking and setting our minds on things above, living out those things that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks, but doing these things while we are still on earth is simply not easy. And it's especially difficult during the times that you're just kind of by yourself and everyone else is doing the exact opposite of what you're trying to do, what you're seeking to do? You know, I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks that we have when it comes to setting our minds and then physically living those things out is because we know the response that we're going to get most of the time is not going to be a positive or encouraging one. because our source for doing these things is hidden from the world's eyes. When you seek to live out the principles and values of the things above, you're not often going to get a hug or a pat on the back or someone coming up and saying, thank you for living like Jesus today. I mean, has that happened to anybody at all? It doesn't even really happen in the church that much, to be quite honest with you. Most likely, you're going to be the lone person trying to live like Jesus in whatever position you're in. Instead of encouragement, you're going to receive ridicule. You're going to be looked at as weak, foolish. The world will try and disqualify you, just like the false teachers were trying to disqualify the believers in the church of Colossians. And it's because these things of God are hidden from their sight. The Bible says they cannot comprehend them. It's foolishness to them. Apart from being positioned in Christ, they're not going to get it, period. But friends, if you are positioned in Christ, there is great news, and we can find that in verse 4. He says, When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ, who is your life, the one you're seeking to grow in, the one you're seeking to imitate, the one you're seeking to portray here on earth, the one who gave you life is coming back. Period. Is that not good news? Three of you think so, that's all right. We're getting some of you excited. He will come back and make all the wrongs right. He will come back and make all things new. Your position in Christ will not always be just a hidden spiritual reality. Listen to this commentator. He says, when Paul says, we will appear with him in glory, he is not referring to a place but to an experience. This is the promise of sharing in the glorified life of Christ. It is the promise of the eradication of evil and every fleshly impulse. It is the promise of everlasting deliverance. Listen to this. Everlasting deliverance from greed and pride and lust and envy and unforgiveness. It is the promise that our whole being, body, soul, mind, spirit, and affections will experience and forever live in the power and purity of God Himself. So, friends, if you're in Christ this morning, if you're positioned in Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, what does this verse mean to you? Don't quit. don't give up. If you're weary from the pressures of the course of this world, if you're weary from striving to seek and set your minds on things above, don't quit. Don't give up. Our struggling, our striving to grow spiritually in Christ is not in vain. One day... Our striving will be over, and the Bible says when that day comes, we will be like him. You see, within this guaranteed fact of Christ's return, we get a glimpse of the glorious reality that awaits us, and we find grace and motivation to continue seeking and setting our minds on the things above. We are not called to useless, mindless religious activities that the false teachers were preaching. Instead, listen to what believers are called to. This is in 1 Timothy 4. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of of value in every way. As it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Believers don't give up. Don't quit. Jesus is coming back. Right now, we live by faith. But soon we will live by sight. So in light of all that Paul is calling us to, how are we to respond to this? And as I've thought about this, I think our response to this text depends on what position you're in spiritually this morning. Are you positioned in Christ? Have you died to this world? Have you been raised with new life in Christ and hidden in God? You see, if you're not hidden in God through faith in Jesus Christ, your life is very much exposed. Listen to what John three thirty six says. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is your position if you've not been raised with Christ. I wish there was a nicer way of putting it. Well, actually, that is a nice way of putting it, if we think about it. If you're here this morning and have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, the Bible is very clear that the wrath of God abides on you. If you are to die in your sin, the Bible says you are headed for an eternity in hell, eternal separation from God. So, what should your response be this morning if you're in this position? Flee to Christ. Flee to the arms of Jesus. Jesus invites you to come. He invites you to believe in Him, trust in Him, receive the forgiveness of sins, and receive eternal life with Him in heaven. You see, a new mindset, a new lifestyle is impossible apart from life himself, Jesus Christ. So what is your position this morning? If you have been raised with Christ, if you are hidden with God, are you seeking and setting your minds on things that are above or maybe you're asking the question, "How do I seek and set my mind on things above?" Friends, there's only one source where we can learn about the character of Christ, about the values of heaven. And that's this right here. Remember the second half of our main point? Spiritual growth stems from intentional, continual focus on Christ. This is where the intentional part comes in we focus on the things above we set our minds on the things above through the lens of scripture so basically are are you reading scripture are you communing with god every day in one of the uh instructional dvds that i have to watch for our Counseling classes, a husband and wife came in and they, they filmed these sessions as a way to teach um, people who are pursuing certification. A husband and wife came in with a, a disastrous marriage. They both professed to be believers, but their marriage was literally falling apart. On the verge of divorce, going to this counselor was like their last ditch Effort. The first session is normally a session where you're just the counselor is just asking questions, getting to know the people, getting to know the situation. At the end of each session, the counselor normally provides like an assignment or homework, if you will, for the counselees to start going through. The counselor gave the husband three chapters to read. And he said, I want you to read this three times in seven days. That's all that I'm asking. I want you to read these three chapters three times. Underline things, write down any questions you may have, bring those back next week, and then we're going to start to discuss these things and what they look like in our life and in our marriage. Next week rolled around. The second session started. Counselor asked, how they did on their homework assignments. The wife shared what she did. And uh, he got to the husband. He said, so how did you do? He said, well, my life's pretty busy. Um, I got halfway through the three chapters one time. I mean, at least he was honest about it. All he had was three chapters to read it three times in seven days. He got halfway through three chapters one time in a period of seven days. And he kept saying, well, you know, my, my life's just really, really busy. I have a lot of things going on. You know, I, I don't know how I can help that. And the counselor said, okay. So he said, I, I want to help you in this, you know. He said, so let, let's look at your daily schedule. He said, when you left here last week, what did you do? He said, well, we went, out to, we went out to eat, had a little dinner. We went home. I had to take care of some things in the garage. He said, all right. What did you do after that? Well, I watch TV. He said, Okay, how long did you watch TV? Two or three hours. And he's like, Well, it's not a sin. I can watch it. And the counselor's like, I'm, Hey, man, I'm just asking questions, you know. He went to the next night. What'd you do? Well, I went to work, came home, ate dinner, kind of got in a little fight. I was fed up with it. The counselor said, Okay, what'd you do the rest of the night? Well, I, I watch TV. Okay, how long do you watch TV? Probably two or three hours. Night after night, counselor just kept asking, the leading all the way through seven days. On Saturday, the guy had watched like six hours of television because of football, because of sports, you know, all that kind of stuff. In a period of seven days, this guy had watched nearly 30 hours of TV. He had three chapters of the Bible to read three times in seven days and he watched 30 hours of TV. This is a guy who came to the counselor knowing that his marriage was in jeopardy, knowing that he wasn't living the way he should have been, knowing that he needed help, knowing that Christ was the only one that could help him, agreeing that he should be in the Word more, and his response the week after, his response to his marriage following, falling apart on the verge of divorce, was 30 hours of TV. I'm afraid this story isn't that uncommon within the church. You see, the, the reason I think we struggle to think like Christ, to live like Christ, to share Christ is because we spend so little time with Christ. We can't expect our mind and our hearts to be continually preoccupied with the things that are above if we are not intentionally engaging our hearts and our minds with the glorious truths of Christ and the things above. So what is engaging your heart and your mind? What are you setting your mind on? Because if it's not Christ, it is something. That's just the way we're wired. If we're not meditating, thinking about Christ, we are thinking and meditating on something. Something is attracting our attention. And maybe right now you know exactly what your mindset is, you know exactly what's consuming your time. It may be your job, maybe your hobby, uh, maybe uh, health or fitness. It may be family. It may be sports. You see, none of these things are bad. None of these things are evil in and of themselves, but they are not our identity. They shouldn't be ruling and consuming our hearts and our minds. None of these things can give us life. All of these things down here are just temporary. Instead, our true identity, Christ, should consume our heart and our mind so you can then live in all these areas in a way that's glorifying to Him. You can work out your hobby. You can work out your job. You can watch TV in a glorifying way. Maybe you're not exactly sure what is consuming your heart and your mind, but you know it's not Christ. If that's you this morning... Here's a question or two I think that'll help you maybe kind of sift through and identify what you are setting your heart and your mind on. Listen to this. When there's nothing vying for your mind's attention, where or what do you find yourself drifting to? When there is nothing vying for your mind's attention, where or what do you find yourself, find yourself drifting to? Another question that you could think about, if you've had a bad day, if nothing has gone your way, where do you find yourself drifting to? Where do you find yourself seeking to find comfort at? Maybe a certain thought, could be a certain activity, whatever. for me especially last year i don't have my phone with me that sucker was taking up a ton of my time specifically a little blue app with an f on it i'd i would find myself whenever i had even like 5 free minutes that thing was out and i was just mindlessly scrolling Mindlessly scrolling. And how many of us have been there like where time flies by and you look at your watch and realize you just spent an hour scrolling through the news feed on Facebook learning about what people just ate for dinner? An hour of your life gone because we're just sitting there with big eyes. And and normally Facebook does not stir up Christian values in me at least. I find myself getting aggravated with the people. It's like, this is ridiculous. You know, what's this guy doing with himself? And then I'm like, well, what am I doing with myself? (laughs) I mean, am I the only one in the boat? I, I don't think so. And again, there's nothing wrong with Facebook in and of itself. But it does nothing to set our minds on things above. If our desire is to grow spiritually if our responsibility is to set our minds on things above, then if we stop and think about this for a minute, it's flat out scary to realize how much time our phone is getting versus how much time the Word of God is getting. Or how much time your TV is getting versus how much time the Word of God is getting. Or how much time your computer, you could plug in all kinds of stuff there. And then we wonder why we're not growing spiritually. We end up like that guy in the counseling session, like, man, I don't know, it's all her fault. I've I've been doing everything that I know how to do. Really? TV's going to teach us how to live out our marriage in a glorifying way to God? Whatever the Lord is revealing to you today, whatever's consuming your thoughts whatever's consuming your heart, your response to this, my response to this, I think should be to repent. Ask forgiveness and then ask the Holy Spirit for help. See, like most of us know we are to do this, we don't have to be told that we're supposed to read our Bibles Like maybe you were thinking in your mind when I was going to this, like, oh, here it comes we're supposed to read our Bibles. Like we, we don't need to be told we're supposed to read our Bibles. But I think the biggest problem we struggle with is the desire to read our Bibles. Like we'll just sit at home knowing, yeah, I should probably be in my Bible. We kick ourselves, we get down. And then what happens? We never end up reading our Bible just because it's like a snowball. You know, it just keeps going and going. to self-pity, guilt, all kinds of stuff. Friends, do you realize we can ask the Holy Spirit for help in this area? We can ask the Holy Spirit for motivation, for desire, for wisdom, for revelation to understand these things. We see Paul pray similar prayers in many of his letters. He prays these same things for the people that he's writing to, that the Holy Spirit would stir up these things within them. And so in turn, that would draw them to Christ and to focus on Christ. In Matthew 7, when it talks about the good things that God loves to bestow upon his children, these are the good things I think that Matthew 7 is talking about. If you're desiring to grow more like Christ and you ask the Holy Spirit to help, I believe you can bet with everything that you have, God is going to dump that ability upon you. But are you asking for it? Are you asking for help? Are you asking for the motivation, for the desire? And secondly, we're not lone rangers in this. Ask a fellow brother or sister. Tell them, you know, man, I'm I'm really struggling with this. I, I don't know really how to arrange my schedule. I don't know how to make time for this. You know, that's what we're here for, is to help each other grow in Christ. To help point each other to Christ. Because we're not going to be perfect at this. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. We're not going to be perfect till Jesus comes back. And we have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and the help of one another, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So what do we do? We pray for the Holy Spirit's help. We believe that God will be faithful to his word. And then we dive in, start reading. Let your feelings follow your actions, not the other way around. So often is that, that's, that's what happens to us. Our actions follow how we feel that day. Believe that God will answer your prayer. That he bestows these things upon his children. That he desires to conform you into the image of Christ. And then remember Philippians 1.6. We can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are so desperate for you We literally rely on you for everything. Ephesians 2 is clear that apart from you, we are dead. We are buried. We are in bondage to sin. That is the position we are in. So we are reliant upon you to give us life. And then we are reliant upon the Holy Spirit to help us grow in maturity and to grow into the image of Christ. God, we need help in these areas. Holy Spirit, I pray that you motivate us, that you stir up desire in us, that you stir up passion within us to seek and to set our minds on things above, and that that would have an external physical effect on our lives on earth. God, I pray for the ones here in this room. If there is one here that is not positioned in Christ, Holy Spirit, I pray that you weigh so heavily upon their heart and their soul that they can't help but surrender and flee into your arms. God, make yourself great in their eyes. Open their eyes that they may see. Open their ears that they may be be able to hear. Father, we thank you for the good gifts that you do bestow upon upon your children. Jesus, thank you for being our mediator, for being our faithful and high priest. Because if we are not in you, none of these things are possible. We praise you that you are life, that you are fullness, and that you are freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.